Good evening, dear listeners. It's Ann Harris, the host of Once in Future Grinnell, uh, the radio show entirely dedicated to strategic planning at Grinnell College. As I said, I'm Ann Harris. I have the honor of serving as the 14th president of Grinnell, and I welcome you to what may be our final show. I need to learn if we're going to go uh, beyond this week into our work together uh, into into the license for being able to broadcast um but we have come such a long way this is our ninth episode and we end with financial sustainability as our theme um and a perfect way to end because we want to think about it in terms of what is possible and i have two wonderful guests this evening that i'll be speaking with um and of course want to spend as i usually do the first part um, of our show, about the first 10, 15 minutes, really giving kind of background and um, a kind of introduction to this particular topic and a kind of introduction to strategic planning. So first and foremost, of course, is the music that you heard, rather grand, uh, you might think, for strategic planning, uh, but it was recommended by a listener. Uh, it is the King Arthur Suite by Henry Purcell, performed by the... Um, Oh my goodness, why am I blanking on the name all of a sudden? Uh, by the Academy of Ancient Music, um, directed by Richard Egger. And it's absolutely wonderful to, to even consider uh, hearing just even a minute of that piece of music. But um, very important to do so because indeed, the Once in Future Grinnell, the, the show, Once in Future Grinnell, the title, is related to King Arthur. Believe it or not, there's a medieval connection. And so I just love starting this show with that piece of music because it, um, first of all, for me, now has become a familiar sound that we're going to enter into some really welcome conversation about the five strategic principles that um, I'm sharing in community with Grinnell College constituents and um, also also heralds, you know, this kind of, um, yeah, the kind of large stakes and the grand scale of the work that we're doing, even though we're doing it in the intimate setting um, of a radio show. So by way of introduction, I always like to talk about what um, the show title means, right? Once in Future Grinnell, um, how it connects to this wonderful set of uh, books actually called The Once in Future King about King Arthur, um, a set of books dedicated really to um, the, the, the coming into personhood that happens to King Arthur from when he's a, a small orphaned child to the moment when he's recognized as king. Um, and what happens in this book, Once in Future King, is that that evolution, of course, is very much centralized around his education. So, um, and his education with um, the Merlin, uh, the wizard Merlin as his uh, as his teacher, uh, which of course is a wonderful opportunity for me to sing the praises of faculty and staff as wizards at Grinnell College, which I think they are. I truly think they are. Here we are ending our academic year. We will have commencement next Friday. Um, we will be uh, sending students once more into the world um, to to shape the common good of that world and to do so from a very intentional space of Grinnell College, right? To do so from this moment in which we're really on a threshold coming out of a pandemic, really about to enter what we might start to recognize as a post-pandemic world um, and recognize really is the word, right? Coming to know ourselves again, coming to know communal living, coming to know um, our habits, um, reforming them and reshaping them. So. I think a very important moment to discuss both strategic planning broadly and then financial sustainability specifically. So when it comes to thinking about, again, why we would even engage in strategic planning, why colleges and universities do this, um, I think it is in some ways precisely for moments of crisis like um, what happened in 2008-9 where there was a, a you know the great recession uh, where really the economic landscape shifted dramatically what happened this year over the past two years really um, this great pandemic this COVID-19 pandemic and to to think about what's going to hold us true through those moments what's going to keep us steady because of course a college like Grinnell College has been here for 175 years. So there's definitely a large temporal scale through which to think about um, the presence of the college. And so one plans into its future. I always say colleges dream their own futures. 
What that means is, yes, we're thinking about operations every year. Yes, we make budgets, but we also think 10, 20, or even intergenerationally, you're going to hear that word a lot this afternoon uh, or this evening, intergenerationally into 50 or even 100 years from now. And that's where you go from you know, strategic planning to strategic planning. In other words, you're, you're, there are things we know, there are things we don't know, there are things that we think about. So in doing this um, and in focusing on financial sustainability, you know, I, I was very conscious of how the five strategic principles are, are in some ways their own narrative. So we began with community, we followed with educational excellence and continuity. At the center of the principles is diversity, equity, and inclusion. And then just last week, we finished up our two sessions on health and well-being, and now we're talking about financial sustainability. And the, the reason for me that it's last in some ways is to signal this idea of the five strategic principle as in a constant loop with each other. So the financial sustainability makes things possible, which makes community, educational excellence, DEI and health and well-being possible, which feeds into financial sustainability, and we start all over again. So this is why it comes at this particular point. And I'm, I'm very, very much fascinated by um, the culture of finances, the culture of something like financial sustainability. And I say this to you as a medieval art historian um, whose, whose dissertation was actually dedicated to um, this very interesting period in the 13th century when money stopped being a symbolic object of exchange between bishops and kings and actually became more and more of a quotidian mechanism for trade. It's a fascinating period. Um, Marx actually writes brilliantly about it uh, and he, he tracks that shift from an economy of um, exchange in kind. So I will give you three loaves of bread for one chicken, that kind of thing. And you can scale that all the way up. Uh, you have a little gender history, you know, all the way to women uh, and, and marriage and so forth. So an economy in kind, um, switching slowly but surely in the 13th century to a market economy um, and that meant money itself changed from being the symbolic object, gold coins being exchanged, or sometimes, sometimes given in, in international trade, but to being uh, absolutely practical, quotidian, daily use in markets. Um, and so I tracked that in, um, in studying stained glass windows, which were themselves given uh, as gifts. Uh, as the result of market uh, economy trade by tradespeople um, and some wonderful controversies as to whether the images of stained glass that we see being given by tradespeople are given um, actually or whether this is the church kind of dreaming itself into tradespeople converting their money into gifts to the church. So believe it or not, it's actually pertinent to speak about the Middle Ages today for two reasons. One is the concept of stewardship that we're going to be talking about today. And you know that every single week I've touched on this on this wonderful um, simultaneity that we all occupy when we're members of a college community, that we are both constituents and caretakers of that community. I see the same simultaneity when we think about democracy. We are constituents of a democracy. We benefit from its rights and civil liberties, but we are also caretakers of that democracy. We vote, we legislate, um, we <laughs> protest, we, we, are, we take care of it, we take care of its principles, we uphold it as much as we benefit from it. I would say that that's the same in a college community. We are constituents of Grinnell College, we all benefit from it. We are all, um, we benefit from its governance. We benefit from its decisions. We benefit from, um, yes, its policies, but we're also caretakers of it. We, we engage in governance. We are decision makers together, or we feed into governance structures that help decision making. Um, and of course, our actions, our scholarship, our, stu our stewardship, um, all of our actions make us caretakers of the institution. So that simultaneity has fascinated me all along. And when it comes to financial sustainability, I really wanna hone in on this idea of stewardship. So stewardship, and here's the medieval connection for you, is this old English word, it comes from the old English word stig word, um, designating the house guardian or the keeper of the hall. 
the keeper of the hall. So when we think about being stewards of the institution, and the, and we'll we'll be speaking more about what stewardship really can mean. I think there's several different meanings of the term. Um, we can be stewards in our budgets. We can be stewards of the endowment. We can be steward. We can steward gifts to the college as well. That stewardship is this sense of taking care, right? The keeper of the hall. Um, and I love the idea that the keeper of the hall doesn't mean you're just protecting it. It means you're managing it somehow, right? There's always a lot going on in a medieval hall. You've, if you've seen, I don't know, Game of Thrones or any any number, uh, Vikings um, of television shows. But there's there's a whole lot going on in a hall. And so to be the keeper of the hall means you're, you're taking care of those operations, but you're also thinking about the next ruler in the hall you're thinking about the next people in the hall that's a very important thing so that's a that's a, a good medieval connection and you know yes medieval i'm always excited when there's a medieval connection but what i really want to signal there is just how deep some of these um practices of financial sustainability go so stewardship would be one of them yes capitalism is relatively new in human history um uh, but, but some of these habits, right, like keeper of the hall, go much, much deeper uh, than even the history of capitalism. The other thing I want to point out here are the medieval roots of the concept of an endowment. So endowments today, and you'll hear more about this tonight, of course, have a, a very, a very contemporary definition. They operate in very contemporary ways within our economy. Um, uh, our investments and so forth. But but in the Middle Ages, the first time you see these words of endowment, what did it mean to endow something? You were endowing altars. And to endow an altar meant several things. To keep it liturgically supplied. You don't get to use that phrase every day. To keep it liturgically supplied with candlesticks and fresh tablecloths and other um, implements of liturgy. This could be a, a Eucharist holder or the, it could be a cup for wine, but to keep it liturgically equipped and liturgically plentiful. And also to keep prayers, to, to keep it um, staffed, I think is what I would say, right? To keep it staffed with a priest who would offer prayers to the altar long after you were gone. And the payments for those were usually benefits from land. So land was, you know, land is still wealth um, in, in our current economy, but in the Middle Ages, land really was everything in terms of wealth. And so um, an endowment would be whatever the benefit from the land came that could be given for the upkeep of the altar, which, which was the site of liturgical performances that would, of course, maintain one's soul, right? Uh, maintain... Uh, um, Oh, I don't want to get too theological, but you're praying for someone's soul and, and there's purgatory and then you make your way up to heaven. We don't have to get into all that theology, but it's so important for me that we think about how deep this idea goes, that there is this larger wealth like land, that there is a benefit from that wealth that goes to something else that here in this instance goes to a spiritual future. Now for us in the modern period, when we talk about endowments for Grinnell College, it goes into the future of the institution. So endowments used to be ways to ensure spiritual futures. They're now used to ensure institutional futures. And that's a really fascinating place to be. Um, that is where I will end my introduction because I now have the tremendous pleasure of welcoming two cherished colleagues and guests to Once and Future Grinnell. Um, JT Thayer is the Chief Investment Officer at Grinnell College, and Jackie Thede is the Vice President for Development and Alumni Relations at the college. And I will invite you both to um, come into the, the show. You can um, unmute yourselves and uh, reveal your cameras. Unfortunately, dear listeners, you can't see my dear colleagues, but I will um, invite you to introduce yourselves by just talking about how you came to Grinnell, how long you've been here. And um, I guess I could say, you know, what's your favorite thing about financial sustainability? For me, it's those medieval connections for sure. But, um, you know, something that you love about the institution. So I'll, Jackie, I'll turn to you first. Sure. So thanks for having me. First of all, hello, everyone. Um, so I'm Jackie Thede. I will have been at Grinnell three years in July. Um, I came from Butler University before I was here at Grinnell, and I won't go through my whole resume, but I've been 
in the fundraising and alumni relations business for 27 years. This summer will be 27 years. So I don't really like to say how long that is because when I first was getting into it, I remember seeing jobs that you needed to have five to 10 years of experience. And I didn't ever think I would have that. So now I feel pretty old. Um, so, um, and my, my favorite thing, we'll talk more about this. My favorite thing about Grinnell College, it's how it changes lives. And, and I'll go into more on that a little bit later, but I, I just think that the education that we provide changes lives. And I love seeing that. I love being a part of it. Excellent. Excellent. Oh, that's marvelous. GT, how about yourself? So, so I'm, I'm the, uh, known as the other JT, actually, because I, I joined Grinnell College um, in, in September of, of 2018. So I'm coming up on my third anniversary, just a few short weeks after Jackie is. Um, and I actually joined Grinnell from, from Oberlin College, where I served as the chief investment officer there as well. Um, and it's, it really is uh, it's a pleasure to join you, Anne. Thank you for the invitation. Um, and, and this is just a lot of fun. I, I, I was going to say my favorite thing is actually listening to you talk about, you know, <laughs> medieval times and finance because that's an amazing connection that you've made in the last few minutes <laughs> but um, I, I think you know for me it, it is very personal um, you know I, I, mm-hmm. I went to school on scholarship and and I, I feel like the ability to actually work to really give back and to support institution that that really has the missions that, that Grinnell does is just a, it's an honor yes. so very, yes. very thankful um, to be here. I'm glad to hear you say that because it gets us right into kind of our, our you know, our threshold issue when it comes to um, talking about financial sustainability as a strategic principle. Um, and of course, side note, I'm happy to send you parts of my dissertation, JT, so we can keep talking about the, the medieval connection. But, um, but you know, my father went to college on the GI Bill, and that completely changed his life after World War II. Um, and when I see his life trajectory and his brother's life trajectories, they stayed on the farm down in, in North Carolina. Um, there were two entirely different trajectories. So there's something here. And that GI Bill, of course, was a huge influx of finances into education. And there's something that is so interesting to me culturally about how finances can seem like this, you know, um, do we have to talk about them? Or that's just the stuff behind the scenes or, you know, but actually bringing it forward as part of the conversation and having shared knowledge about financial sustainability is really important to me for us as a community. Um, and, and, you know, we have to be very, very uh, forthcoming about, I mean, there's all sorts of forms and so forth and, and public education even has to be more forthcoming about things. So I think that that aspect of it of like, yes, this is an important part of the conversation. This isn't behind the scenes making things happen. We have to be intentional and um, we have to have that shared understanding about financial sustainability, about how it happens. So I'm going to um, begin, um, Jackie, with, with you because some of the interest that you had in terms of, of the questions that you wanted to address from the um from the essay that I wrote about this, but but don't worry, dear listener, I'll, I'll fill in the context always, um, which is which is to think about the business model of small liberal arts colleges, and this becomes um, an important and sometimes poignant conversation because of the financial trouble that many small liberal arts colleges are in. Grinnell College is not one of those. We are most fortunate, but. There's that stewardship piece, right? The, the years of good fortune and good stewardship kind of operating together. Um, and, and the business model is tuition, rev- well, in terms of revenue model, um, you have tuition revenue, you have uh, the payoff from the endowment, and you have philanthropy as well. And so we'll talk about some of the some of the different interactions between the three but i wanted to focus on philanthropy because this is again a really interesting dynamic you will hear people say well education is a business or education is not a business but this is where it gets really fascinating to me to think of how you know what benefits from philanthropy where the things like you you nonprofits right are connected to philanthropy that's just i just want to pause and, and kind of see that for um, when did that decision get made, right? In other words, like there's private education, public education, tax dollars do some work, but that connection between philanthropy and nonprofit is really, really very interesting to me. So, so for you, I wanted to ask you the question um, that, that you were interested in taking on. Um, where, in your opinion, is fundraising most needed as we think about the future of the college and its constituents? And here, I, I also am very interested in how you've seen philanthropy change from gifts to the college to investments in the college in some way. So very eager to hear your thoughts there. 
Yeah, that's a, that's a lot to try to, um, to <laughs> think through. But I, I'll say, you know, for right now, I, you know, I would not be doing my job if I didn't talk about the fact that we are in the tail end of our comprehensive fundraising campaign. It's the first campaign that the college has conducted in over 20 years, and it's been a great success. But there are there are six priority areas that the college has has identified, and I'll just uh, quickly go through those: scholarship and financial aid, of course, is an obvious individual teaching and in, pardon me individually advised teaching and learning which is really kind of faculty research athletics arts everything that makes our residential experience so incredibly diverse and life-changing then the cls the center for career and uh, careers life and service institute for global engagement world-class facilities and the last one is the pioneer fund which is unrestricted so those are the six priority areas there's still time to make a gift if anyone wants to um, you can do that through june 30th but I'd say, you know, on the longer term, um, it's really about, you're gonna hear me say this over and over tonight, I bet, it's about budget relieving dollars. We've gotta figure out ways to have people direct their gifts to areas of the college that they're passionate about um, that will help relieve the operating budget. We just, um, we spend so much of our operating on financial aid and scholarships. I'd say that that's probably the key place that seems like everybody could get behind, but um, but that's that's the place where we really, um, we really show what this institution can do. So, and I, and I, you know, part of the luxury of this time is to kind of dig into the whys of, of why we do what we do. And so, I'm gonna say this nice and slow, Grinnell College among its peer institutions spends more of its operating budget on financial aid than any other peer institution. So that to me would be one of the whys. You know, why do we need to re relieve the operating budget with, um, with gifts? It's to free up more money for financial aid. But but maybe there's more to add there. And JT, of course, feel free to feel free to jump in as well. But why why would we want to do that with gifts as well? Why why should philanthropy be geared to that? Should be geared to the budget relief. To the budget relief, yeah. Um, JT, you look like you had something you wanted to say. Do you want to jump in there? No, no, I, 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 it's something I actually wanted to go back to something you said before, Anne, about the about why this is important to make this part of the conversation, and I do think that this is perhaps a uh, unique circumstance to Grinnell in many mm -hmm. ways, and it is that the institution is incredibly fortunate to have the resources that it does, right, to be able to support the the programmatic and and certainly the the, the generosity with the financial aid. But it also is in a situation where I think a lot of people objectively will look at the endowment and say, well, that's you have enough money already. Why, why do you need more money? And I actually think that it's very important to bring this forward because it is, you know, it, it is not an unlimited amount of money that we're talking about here. And, and, and to Jackie's point, the, to, to the, the ability to relieve any pressure that we have on the ability of the endowment to support operations is going to help in the longer term mission of this institution. Yeah. Um, so I just want to kind of bring that arc in, into that. Right. I'm yes. sorry, That's Jackie, go ahead. No, that's perfect. I mean, it's it's about intergenerational equity, which Anna, we've been talking a lot about, you know, as the senior team. But it's about making sure that there is actually financial sustainability for Grinnell College, and so bringing gifts in, they they help on an annual basis when they're you know annual gifts to again different parts of the institution that people are interested in. But when people add to the endowment, that's going to help us preserve that intergenerational equity down the road, and and it's really going back to what you talked about at the beginning about stewardship. Mm -hmm. It's about stewardship of our current students and our future students. And the endowment just doesn't do it all. It, it's wonderful and we're glad we have it and we're so happy we have JT in charge of it. Uh, him and his team do, he and his team do a wonderful job, but um, but it just, it doesn't do everything. And it, there really is out there amongst Grinnellians, there's a myth that the the endowment covers anything, yeah. or anything that the college needs, and there is not a need for philanthropy, and that's just not the case. And I'll, I'll say that the reason that's not the case, I mean, there are a lot of reasons, but philanthropy really is is what helps make the difference between good and great. It helps us make that leap. And if I can talk just for a second, I'll give an example. The Center for Career, Life, and Service. Alumni who are listening long ago, far away, you had a very different <laughs> you know, situation with, um, with, I can't think of the name of, um, um, what it was called, but I, I will. But our current CLS is wonderful. It's funded not entirely by 
private philanthropy, but significant parts of that, those career communities, those happen because alumni believe, alumni and donors believe in this college and what uh, what that center can do. And so we, you know, we wouldn't have that that center that I think really takes us from good to great without philanthropy. So what you're and saying, think, oh yeah, please go, no, go I, for I, it. No, and I was just, just going to follow on too, and I, I think, Jackie, to your point, I'm not sure, even if the endowment were able to do anything, that you'd want an institution whose financial model is based solely on, on draws from the endowment, mm. frankly, right? I think, Ian, to go back to your, your point during the during your introduction, you talked about the downturn between 2008 and 2009, and part of what has driven the growth, I mean, the, the, the biggest driver in the growth of the value in the endowment over the last 50 years has been investment returns. And I, I, the one thing I will say is that, you know, investment returns and the performance of global financial markets is and always will be an exogenous factor. We have no control over that. Mm. And unfortunately, if you build a financial model that is predicated on the performance of the financial markets, there are going to be times in which 2008, right, 2020 happen. And the last thing that I want to do is ever come to you and say, geez, you know what, we're going to actually have to cut programmatically over the next year simply because we've had a bad year in the markets. Yeah. That simply is not acceptable for an institution like, like Grinnell. No, and that's why people talk about a, you know, a balanced outlook and trying to think about those three different revenue sources being in some kind of balance with each other. Um, and, and it's so interesting. There's need for philanthropy. And then, you know, from, from my perspective, too, in terms of fundraising, there's pride of philanthropy. An endowed professorship, right? That says something. That says somebody wanted this particular curricular area to be taught at the college in perpetuity back to the Middle Ages, right, in perpetuity. And so if you've got a chair of, uh, you know, whatever, that that topic will be taught, you know, because there's there's an endowment there to look after it, um, to steward it. And so, so thinking about, I, you said from good to great, I think about from needs to pride as well. Um, and then to go into, you know, the pride of what's here. And, and so budget relieving, I mean, yes, endowed professorships are, they, they do indeed relieve the budget, but more than that, they elevate the importance of that particular field from that particular donor for all to see. And we have, by the way, marvelous investiture ceremonies for endowed professors here. There are medals involved, M-E-D-A-L. Um, they're, they're pretty amazing. Um, and if I can jump in there again, yeah. um, I, I think JT made a really good point and I wanna add on to his, this is what the JTs do, we add on to each other's <laughs> points, uh, is, is it from a budget relieving standpoint, you know, again, I think there's a myth out there that that Grinnell has all the resources that it could possibly want and talk to any faculty member or staff member and they will tell you that that is not true. You know, we've gone through a pretty difficult budgeting cycle this past year. And so relieving the budget helps give the institution the flexibility it needs to be able to take advantage of interesting opportunities that come up, which could be helping a student get another internship or sending somebody overseas. And it just, it really helps give us the flexibility to do what we do best. Uh, and that's educate students so that, uh, so that they can find their path. Uh, and so every gift really does help. And the, the one other thing I want to go back to is you were kind of talking a few minutes ago about sort of the, the why and, and such, and, and it just triggered, you know, for as long as I've been in this business, fundraising and philanthropy is an emotional business. Yes. It's different. It's different than a sales transaction, right? Because it's not a sales transaction. People, people need, I've said this before, people, you know, need to buy shampoo or might need to buy a car and all that. But with philanthropy, I'm in a strange business. I ask people to give me their hard-earned money for not much back that's tangible, right? But it's that emotional investment. Right. And so at Grinnell, people are emotional about all sorts of different things. And that's where I hope people will channel mm -hmm. their philanthropy at every level, whether it is a $5 annual gift or a $5 million gift. You've gotta be passionate about what you're giving to, because that's what it means the most to you and to the institution. Beautiful. Yeah, JT, you were going to say something. No, that, that, that is that is tremendous, uh, Jackie. Thank you for sharing that, that that perspective. And I think one of the things I've noticed about being at, you know at Grinnell versus other places that I've worked is it, it's an institution. You know, to go back and echo your, your comments in, in the introduction about stewardship, it is not an institution that pardon the pun, rests on its laurels in, in any way, <laughs> shape, or form. And I think what right. what I see is a very active group 
despite the fact that you do have these resources and I think it would be a lot easier to sit back and say, hey, you know what, we'll, we'll just let the endowment or we'll just let, you know, Jackie take care of that, right? This is a group and a team that I think is very forward looking and, and very focused on trying to do what's best to balance, you know, the, the, that, that the essential question of intergenerational equity between kind of the current student you know current needs of, of the institution versus the, the remainder room and I, I think that when it comes to the stewardship among the senior team that i've seen here i i just i'm i'm blown away every day by what i see in terms of the forward-looking nature of what we're trying to do we never wait to be reactive to a situation we're always thinking about what could happen and how can we put grinnell in the best possible situation should this range of outcomes occur exactly and it's, that. it's really pretty phenomenal well and there you're you're um Getting at a dynamic that's actually a good introduction to a set of questions I'd want to turn to you about the endowment. Um, and that is that within the higher education revenue model, there's both solidity and precarity, right? So there's that solidity of we've been here 175 years, we work and plan for the next 175 or 200 years. But at the same time, all three sources of revenue are highly contingent and barely within our control. Tuition revenue, something like 0809, your Great Recession, that's going to affect tuition revenue. Um, so are things like so socioeconomic inequities, um, you know, that, that position certain college constituents in, in a different position to be able to afford um, tuition. Um, certainly philanthropy, right? You just said it so beautifully, Jackie. Philanthropy is contingent on emotion, and that's not something that one controls. It's something that one connects with or has relationships with. And then, of course, the endowment. That contingency is the world markets, arguably, like as global as it gets. And so I'm always fascinated by both the, the, the solidity of a college like ours, but the precarity of the revenue model. And so this is where I want to enter into a discussion of the endowment, because arguably endowments were created to provide stability, to provide solidity. But if we're realistic about them, as we are, we also know that it's it's not the most firm ground that there could possibly be. And someday, you know, I've, I've taken a history of um, economic, a history of yeah, economics course, and we teach really good ones here. But I would love to have more of a history of nonprofits, like how all these decisions were made that this would be the revenue model, you know, for higher education. And you do see some some institutions of higher education doing other kinds of revenue generation. Mostly it's auxiliary. It's not a pillar the way that, you know, revenue and philanthropy, uh, sorry, tuition, uh, philanthropy and the endowment payout are, are really three, as people call them, pillars of the revenue model. But it is interesting to me to think of, of the fact that this very solid institution is based on a revenue model that is arguably precarious. And I'm, I'm intentionally saying those are like arguably precarious. We can make them, we can shore things up, but bottom line, we don't know what's gonna happen in the world. We don't know what's gonna happen in people's hearts and we don't know what's gonna happen in a family's economy. So, um, or a family's finances. So I, I turn to you then, um, JT, with, with this question about, um, about how we can start to, to talk about the endowment as in some ways both solid and precarious, but a, a larger question. What is the most engaging source of information for you for discussions of the endowment and the financial models of higher education? When you're talking about the endowment or when you're trying to communicate about the endowment, what is the, the source of information? Is it, is it the managers? Is it the, the investments themselves? Is it the payout? Is it the rate? Is it the policy? What's the source of information that, that is most engaging in terms of understanding the endowment and how it works? It, it, that's a, it's a very interesting question, Anne, and, and I'm, if your audience could see me, they would see me kind of staring at the ceiling, pondering <laughs> the, 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 the response here. Yeah. And I actually think that one of the things that is most challenging about my position in terms of managing the endowment is, 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 is in fact the duality of it, right? On the one hand, we do have an investment portfolio and we are very much externally facing. We have interactions with investment managers and, and, and global firms, right, all, you know, all over the world. But at the same time, I, I've argued 
forever that I can't, I don't feel like I can do my job effectively if I don't firmly understand the challenges being faced by the institution. Uh-huh. And so by definition, I need to have an understanding of the community and, a, and an understanding of the needs of the institution and what the dynamics are there. Um, there is a model out there, right, that, that argues that an investment office should be an ivory tower just there to make returns, okay? I don't accept that argument. I, mm-hmm. I just, I don't think, frankly, that I'm doing my job fully if I if I'm completely disconnected from the from the community but I think it also touches on, on a broader issue where I, I think it's very easy to see you know as, as you alluded to kind of the, the, the silos of revenue um, uh, for, for an institution and, and see these as very disparate or independent um, verticals and inputs into into the into the college mm-hmm. I, I think it's actually important to maintain a much more holistic view of that and and you know I, I firmly believe that whether it's you know it's, it's revenue from students or if it's philanthropy or if it's the endowment they're all interconnected and we really actually need to understand how these things work together to influence and, and affect the overall um, institution so I, I, I guess I would, I would answer it that way um, in, in terms of your question um, and I'll, I'll stop there. Yeah, no, that, that's, a, that's a fascinating answer to me and, and not at all the one I expected because it just shows um, that we're not talking about transactions here, right? I mean, if you're saying for you to, the most engaging source of information for you in doing your work with your team in these global markets is to actually know what's going on on campus, that's really fascinating. Um, and, and that can be, yes, in terms of the, the values, the priorities, the needs um, of the institution. So does that translate into how you all, um, I mean, I'm being, I'm being simplistic here, but I think there's always some, some keen interest in the decision-making processes around an endowment. How, how are we gonna invest here versus there? And I know, I've learned from you, you know, you're incredibly, you and your team incredibly values-driven. There's some very careful considerations of, of course, um, uh, what is being invested in, and and Grinnell very publicly, it's on you know, it's on our webpage. Went through a very deeply researched process about um, fossil fuels and uh, you know other considerations, environment, and so forth. So so I'm I'm keen to to delve a little deeper into that relationship between the life of the college and the life of the endowment. Well, I, th- I think you actually touch on on a key, a very central idea and point, and this was actually something that I was, I was going to come back to. But that is really, I, I think it's important to move away from this idea of, you know, a certain business models being good and bad, right? Mm-hmm. I, I think that a business model is a business model for, for, an, for an institution, or I'm, I'm sorry, a financial model. Let me, let, me, let me put it that way. And I think that there are, there are a number of different approaches, right? Even among our peers, when you look at, at small liberal arts colleges across the country, uh, very different approaches to how the financial model works. And importantly, those are the financial models that work for those institutions. And this is exactly why I'm not a huge fan of peer comparisons when it comes to, for example, returns of, of the endowment, simply because the demands on the endowment, the needs of the endowment are very different, and the risks that are taken in those portfolios to generate the returns are very different. So it's 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 an apples and oranges comparison from the beginning. Hmm. Um, I know it's human nature to like to compare things, so it's 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 okay. But I, I think it's important if we can move away from from this idea of things being good and bad to this is more more observational and say this is the financial model. What are some of the potential shortcomings or risks that we're assuming in this, and is there anything we can do about that? And I think that as it as it relates to you know Grinnell. We do rely very heavily. Um, the, the we actually, you know, there's about 55% of the operating of the annual operating budget is supported from the payoff from the endowment, which is a little bit over two times the median of our peer group. The median from the peer group is closer to 20%. So that it is very high, and there really are only two other institutions that are even in this realm. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we're we're asking a lot of that endowment, but I think importantly. Um, it, it's this is the financial model that that has worked for Grinnell. So what we really need to do is take a step back and say, okay, what are the potential shortcomings we have? Okay, we're very reliant on, for example, market-based income, right, and market-based returns. Is there anything that we can do from a policy perspective that might actually um, help to, you know, smooth that out a little bit or take take away some of that risk? Um, and, and importantly, I think with all of these portfolios, what we do, there are certain kind of common themes or common approaches. Uh, people may have even heard of, you know, the endowment model that has been popularized by David Swenson at Yale over the years. And while there are some similarities in how these pools of capitals and uh, how these pools of capital are invested, 
frankly, at the end of the day, depending on the, the overall demands that are being put on the endowment from the individual institution is going to inform how those portfolios are um, invested. And, and Grinnell is at a point today where I wouldn't say that, it, you know, the level of payout drives investment decisions, but it certainly informs them. Mm. And so what I mean by that is I think that we're at a crucial moment in time where if that reliance, I mean, Grinnell tomorrow could go to 100% supported by endowment payout if it wanted to, right? right? Okay, that would take a lot of pressure off of (laughs) other sources of revenue. (laughs) But what that would do was it would put at risk my ability to make the investments and assume the levels of risk that that I feel are required to grow these assets to be able to support the future needs of the institution. And so we're right back to the intergenerational equity conversation. How much do we do today versus being able to do tomorrow? That's so. it. Yeah, that really crystallizes it for me. So the behaviors on campus, of course, um, on campus, you know, at the institution will, yes, you'll be much more conservative in your investments if you know this is it. This is the everything for the college in terms of, wow, that's fascinating. And so in some ways, yeah, the the, the, the less we're dependent on the endowment, the more, um, yeah, the more flexibility that provides you and your team. Yeah, Jackie, please. I, I want to jump in because what JT is talking about there is so important and it's why my team and I talk to donors about the importance of doing two things. There's there's short-term fundraising and there's long-term fundraising. Mm-hmm. Short-term is the annual giving, helping with the operating support. And then long-term is adding to the endowment. If we don't do those simultaneously, then JT doesn't have that flexibility. Then the, the constraints on the institution become greater, um, both at an operating level on a you know a yearly basis and what jt can do long term and so it's why we talk to people about about really trying to support both go for it JT. and jackie one other one other aspect of the of the endowment right that i haven't mentioned that is unique is about 70 or 75 percent of grinnell's endowment is unrestricted and this is this is a testament to your team and to grinnell mm-hmm. historically that the level of flexibility that that affords the institution is amazing most of our peers have the exact opposite, where it's about 20 to 25% is unrestricted. Um, and I came from an institution that basically had virtually nothing um, in terms of unrestricted endowment. So uh, there, there, there are nuances in all of these conversations, but, but this is also a testament, I think, Jackie, to your team and, and the work that they've done too. Well, and, well and, I'd say for years prior to me, go ahead, Ann. No, it's, it's part of the culture, actually, right, of, of philanthropy here. And so that that's another reason then that so much of our operating budget can come from the endowment, right? Is because of, because of the, so much of it is unrestricted. So that that in and of itself is is utterly fascinating to understand. I mean, there's a couple of points here, um, and, and I will say, you know, Grinnell's endowment is well. Okay, so I want to talk about a myth and a fact. So so the, let me get the fact out first, right? Which is, and this, I don't know enough to know if it's all of higher education, but I can tell you that with small liberal arts colleges, and, and this is very familiar to some, and for others, it is a kind of a, a point of revelation, um, which is that the cost of the education, how much it actually costs to educate each student, is actually much more than the tuition that is charged for the education. It actually costs more than the already very high tuition that we put out there. Why on earth is that? You might be asking, right? And part of it is this particular model of higher education. There's a reason that small liberal arts colleges are 2% of the higher ed market. It is an extremely challenging model to maintain because it's okay, challenging, expensive, because you have faculty who are, um, who have degrees, the terminal degrees of their field, so PhDs or MFAs, directly teaching students. There's no graduate students to, to take up sections or to do the grading or to do any of those things. It's an unmediated education. You have unmediated access to, do, to professors um, who have who hold the terminal degrees of their fields and who are nationally recognized in their fields? That is not gonna that is not gonna be inexpensive, right? It just is not. And then you add to that the idea that most of these small liberal arts colleges are in rural communities. This was the big idea in the 19th century, far from Sin City, far from the matting crowd. So we set up shop out here in the fields, 
And, the, and consequently, we kind of have to try to be all things to each other. So this means all sorts of things when it comes to entertainment, when it comes to um, uh, all sorts of auxiliaries, whether it's health and wellness or food or, or all these other aspects. That's another part of the expense of this model. So this is part what fascinates me um, about small liberal arts colleges is that they really are mini societies. And we really are kind of small, like Vatican budgets, you know, like we're small, the budget of a small country, a very, very small country. Um, but the, the budget, it, because it, it is it is a society's budget, not just an institution's budget. And that's why that cost is so much more than or you know than the actual price if i can put it that way that is that is given out there let alone the fact then that we sweep in with a lot of different of financial aid so that's the fact to just keep considering and it's one of those things where i just want to say for small liberal arts colleges there's a reason that they're hard to sustain and i i hope that i've given some of the reasons why it's it heightens my admiration for what we can do now the myth is about Grinnell's endowment and this remarkable fellow Joe Rosenfield I highly recommend reading the book mentor by George Drake it gives you all these stories I marvel at the fact that you know just in the 1950s most of the endowment of the college like a lot of colleges was in farmland and dormitories because those are true and steady and they give you some return and you just don't worry about it well of course the world's gotten more complicated since then um, and the myth to me is this figure of Joe Rosenfield, but also the fact that it was his relationship with Warren Buffett and their passion for the college that really moved the endowment forward. So JT, this is a story that I've, I've always wanted to have your reaction to, but um, I, I learned not too long ago that, and I believe this is detailed in the book Mentor, that in, in one of these sales, and they were, they, they, they decided if these investments benefit the college, they benefit the college. If they if they don't benefit the college, we'll absorb the cost. That is really not the policy anymore, as we all know. But then apparently the entire half of the endowment was put towards a purchase that ended up having a terrific return. I believe it was this famous radio station or something like that. And I just yes. I just would love to have been at that board meeting where that decision was made. <laughs> like, let's spend half the endowment on this thing. But the 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 point of the mythology that I want to get to here is the it, it, or at the root of it is this idea of relationships, right? That this isn't just mathematics or and, and mathematics are highly relational too. But what I mean is that it's not a series of calculations or transactions. There there are a lot of relationships here, um, and so it is. I put all this to you, and JT, I'd, like I said, I'd love your response to this idea of spending half the endowment on one investment. Um, but I put it to you in some ways to ask you the more existential question, you know, how do we humanize the endowment as something to take care of, as opposed to something that should just keep giving money to the institution? So I'll, I'll put the existential question aside for a second and just ask you about that particular move, I mean, is that even possible in higher education anymore? Are there rules against that? Well, uh, I don't think that there are, there are rules per se, although I, I do think fiduciary duty might have something to say about that. <laughs> uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm not sure that the standards... You know, the other thing I, I would point out, too, about your your, your description, too, of, of, of what Grinnell offers is not only are the students sitting with world-class right scholars yeah. but they're sitting in classes at nine to one ratio thank so it's you literally eight other people in the room with Great them point. who are doing this which Great is certainly point. not the experience that, that i had yeah. um no but you you you, you touch on 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 the exact reason why i probably hesitated most in joining grinnell was these are huge shoes to fill right you're talking mm -hmm. about warren buffett you're talking mm -hmm. about joe rosenfield who maybe is a little bit lesser known but but certainly is of no lesser statue yes. um that, that, yes. than warren buffett in terms of investing um and so just to just to increase that mythology a little bit, yes, that I, from what I understand, those stories are are one hundred percent true. But even if you fast forward to the early nineteen eighties, there were actually three investment managers who were responsible for managing almost ninety percent of the endowment. Right, so that is concentrated. Okay, <laughs> that is not something you would see today. That is not you know if you look at the, the endowment model I alluded to before, that that certainly is not the, not the case. But I would also highlight one important factor, and this goes back to the conversation earlier, is you know if we look at the, the actual percentage um, of the operating budget that was supported by the endowment, if you go back to the 80s, it was only about 
that's a very different model. And so again, when you have lesser dependence there, the amount of risk and how you can theoretically invest the, the investment portfolio ah, is very different. Okay. I could not do that today simply because the volatility of those potential returns um, would be too great. Um, so you know, we are, I think, being very creative in, in terms of how we approach the investment platform, um, in terms of keeping our eyes open. And, and frankly, a big part of my job is, is I, I believe, is trying to look in places where other people aren't. And that will lead us, you know, down very interesting pathways. Um, sometimes they're a little bit lonely, but it's, it's okay, because frankly, um, I think that there is a pressure within higher ed and people that are in my position to, um, again, I go back to that peer comparison. The other thing that it does is uh, we, we, we actually talked to somebody at a, at a multi-billion dollar endowment on the East Coast who's one of the Ivy Leagues. And he flat out said, look, part of part of our entire structure is to just um, perform well relative to our peers. And so what do you end up doing is it basically pushes everyone into doing the exact same thing, which mm-hmm. I think is, is actually dangerous from an investment standpoint. But, you know, I, I think to take a step back, I um, it's... it's uh, it's a, in terms of humanizing the endowment, it is it is a very difficult thing to do. Um, I think the way that I do it personally, and I don't know if this necessarily answers the question or is very helpful from that perspective, is really twofold. Is is one, as I alluded to at the very beginning, I consider it an honor to be able to do what I do simply because I feel like I'm giving back the way that somebody else gave to me. Right. And so I'm actually this is my way of applying my mm. professional skills to help people 50 or 100 years from now that I'm never going to meet. But, but by helping the institution, I perpetuate that same philanthropy, that same generosity that helped me. Um, and I think that to me is the only, you know, that in the fact that and so that's a very personal uh, view of that. But I, I think. Beyond that, I, it, it becomes very hard because it is very easy, and especially during difficult conversations related to budget or related to other um, sorts of issues that are similar, it is easy to become just a dollars and cents um, you know, kind of conversation. But, but I'd go back to something that Jackie said. I mean, the reason we have the endowment today is because of generosity of people before us. And all we're trying to do is create and perpetuate this pool of capital so that people who come after us can actually enjoy that same level of generosity and hopefully get back in their own way. That's so powerful. Yeah, Jackie, I just perpetuate generosity. Jackie, go ahead. Well, I just, I, you know, it's really, it's a great question. It's really hard, Anne, to try to, mm-hmm. you know, to personalize an endowment. And so the way I think we have to try to keep doing it is to keep telling the stories about how Grinnell has changed lives, about how Grinnellians are just fundamentally changed. And I'm going to, I'm going to reference something. There's a, there's a video that, that my division just sent out a couple weeks ago. And it's a video with his permission, of course, that um, Jitender Dulani, a class of 98, um, spoke for us at one of our campaign events. And, and I, anyone listening, I can't encourage you enough to please go to um, campaign.grinnell.edu. And there are videos that you can watch that show the impact. But Jitander was homeless before he came to Grinnell. Mm-hmm. And he got to come to Grinnell because some people took an interest in him. And it's a, it's a long story that he does a much better job of doing it. But bottom line is he was just elected to our board of trustees two weeks ago. Yeah. So to go from homeless to a Grinnell education, he went on to be a very, he is a very successful lawyer. That's, a, that's changing someone's life. That's the impact. That's how you humanize it to me. And we just keep trying to tell those stories because there are so many of them. We have amazing, amazing alumni, over 22,000 of them. Um, just amazing alumni. Hey, Jackie, you know, I, I think back to the stories and I, I, you know, for example, when we sit in a meeting with Joe Bagnoli, right, and he talks about what Grinnell has been able to do to preserve access um, to middle class, right, families across the country, across ethnicities, across so many different dimensions. And I think about what we're actually doing every single day. To me, that is the motivation that I get to go out and do what we do in terms of the investing side of things. And, and I don't know if that can help change people's perspective of this, but I think 
part of it, frankly, is stepping outside yourself, right? Mm-hmm. If you're if you're looking at the endowment saying this is a huge pool of capital that we should just be able to write a check from at any point, I would argue, I, I would just ask you to please step outside yourself and think about the person that is going to come to Grinnell 10 years from now, 50 years from now, right? Who's going to be a first generation student who's given an opportunity to get an education or frankly, another student who, who had no other possibility of going and getting a higher education anywhere. And, and think about it from that perspective. And I, I think that will change your, your view quite a bit. Because then, it, again, it moves from transactions to relationships. And I think of it, to me, I was thinking, you know, the endowment is, is not the bank. It's not the bank where we can, quote, as you said, write a check. It really becomes the hall, right? And who, who can we get at the table? Who can be with us at the table? And I think so much about when we, and we're gonna close out, see time flies when you're doing strategic planning. So we we have just a few minutes left, but I did want to of course touch upon this intergenerational equity concept that gets brought up. Many times when we talk about an institution like ours or when we talk about um, endowments, but, and and that is of course the, the, the disparities, what gets called the racial wealth gap for example, that's been um, very, very well studied in recent years by um, President Melvin Oliver and, Th- and Thomas Shapiro, for example. Um, but where there's income, that's one thing, and then there's wealth and wealth transfer and the importance of wealth transfer and the role of education in wealth transfer. And so all the data that these economists and sociologists have done that really show what a game changer education is. Uh, Now, there's still work to be done in our society and in our systems and and, and in the way that they are biased or discriminatory um, throughout, and specifically thinking about housing and banking, where, where there's other research there. But education as that game changer, education as that wealth um, transfer possibility, student debt is the big factor there. And again, again, when you, and I, I love what you're saying, JT, because, and Jackie, because you're making me see, you know, this is that worthwhileness. I love the English language. I love the term worthwhile. It's worth your while. It's worth your time. It's, it's worth your, your life's work to, to, um, create, or I love how you put it, perpetuate generosity so that we're combating systemic um, inequities such as wealth transfer, right? And we can do our own work to abolish student debt to, um, and our loan, no loan initiative certainly does that. So I wanted to end, and it's really, it's like three minutes, so there won't be a whole lot of time, but by talking about, um, by talking about intergenerational equity. And so you've already given me this image, JT, of, you know, thinking about, the next student two or three or four generations who makes their way to Grinnell, Iowa from Ghana, from Singapore, from Brooklyn, Iowa. Um, It could be, you know, from so many different places. Um, Jackie, I wanted to ask you, what's your image of the intergenerational Grinnell? When you think about the Grinnell of the future, what is the image that you think of and what makes it worthwhile to do what we do? I, I I think about the, the alumni and parents and friends and donors who, who give us significant gifts to endow something, right? Mm-hmm. And they do that because it's their mm-hmm. it's their legacy, it's their connection, their perpetual connection to the institution so that someone in a hundred years is going to be getting the Susie Q scholarship, right? And they're doing that because they feel so strongly about the institution. They have that passion that I brought up before. And whether it's um, in a specific department or if it's just for financial aid, they want to make sure that someone else receives what they received and down the road. And so it's it's Grinnellians, I have the chills when I say this, yeah. it's Grinnellians taking care of Grinnellians down the road yeah. and um, down many roads. Um, and so that, that's what I think. I think it's all about caring about how the, the college changed their life um, and giving that back to people in 100 years. And that's why the word sustainability too. I mean, what it sustains right into the into the future there. I hadn't thought about legacy. That's an important concept when we think about all this. And of course, names, right? The idea that names are in perpetuity, be it Susie Q or Joe Rosenfield or others. JT, any final thoughts on this yeah, question? I, I was just going to say, and I, I think to me, I think we all have an opportunity today and, and certainly Grinnell as an institution to be role models in terms of mm. creating and, and, and forming directing a world that we 
envision or want to see, right? And the changes that we want to be part of. But I also think more importantly, it gives us the opportunity to educate that next generation of people who actually are going to be able to go out and actually make that change. And that's, I think, just it, it, it is so deeply ingrained in the mission of this institution to, to, to graduate people who go out and change the world um, that it's, it's just it's it's really it's really exciting. It's and, really amazing. Oh, that's so powerful. And to think about holding that place, right, that Grinnell does to do that for generations to come. So as someone who once studies cathedrals, what you're saying makes perfect sense to me. Uh, it is, right? And many cathedrals were built well beyond one's own lifetime. And it is meaningful to me to think about the work that we're doing here, carrying on long after we're gone. There's something very powerful about that. So I can't thank you enough, my dear, dear colleagues, the two JTs that were here to talk about financial sustainability, its relationships, its emotions, its passions, um, its perpetuated generosities and legacies. And um, I thank you, dear listeners, for joining me for this perhaps final episode, we might be back, in which case um, we'll have one more go at thinking about the strategic planning of this marvelous institution. I wish you well and good evening.